Episode 11 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Welcome to episode 11 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team, and if we can, we spend some time communicating directly with the team in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor is information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. In this week's episode, we're going to be focusing on the largest initial coin offering to date, which occurred earlier this year. It was actually in June and July of 2017, and which raised an unprecedented amount of money. And by that, I mean the amount raised in Ether and Bitcoin at the time amounted to about $232 million. This was collected over a period of 13 or so days. Now, that amount of money that was collected then in those currencies is now worth about $580 million. And the reason that we're going to focus on this particular ICO is that it is now the target of a class action lawsuit. It was just filed a week or so ago. Now, this could potentially have a very serious impact on the ICO and token sale markets in general. So this week is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to be conducting our usual 14-point analysis of the ICO under question. Instead, we're going to be using the circumstances of this particular ICO and also the elements of the class action complaint, which are pretty well spelled out, in order to provide us with perspective perspective of how to use or how professionals use the Howey test, taken from the point of view of the attorneys who crafted the lawsuit, since it turns out that that's essentially the basis of their argument. And in doing so, we get this sense of what an ICO should not be doing when creating their offer to the public. The other thing that we need to do is talk a little bit about this infamous DAO, D-A-O, debacle that occurred on the Ethereum platform back in June and July of 2016. Because as it turns out, in an interesting way, these two events are related. So let's get to it. This week's ICO is... Tezos. I want to spend a few minutes first describing what Tezos was or is intended to be. It was described in its original white paper as a self-amending cryptographic ledger. The fundamental concept of this was a platform that would support smart contracts like Ethereum, but, and now I'm quoting, while avoiding some of the political and technical problems that earlier efforts such as Bitcoin and Ethereum have faced. 
So essentially, this ambitious project sought to establish an alternative to the two largest public blockchains, which at the time had a combined market cap of about $100 billion. So it's not too surprising that this particular ICO got quite a bit of attention when it came out. And these so-called political and technical problems that they were referring to were some of the spectacular failures in the Ethereum platform, such as the DAO, which was a large ICO back in 2016 that completely imploded when an error in code caused tens of millions of dollars to essentially be stolen from thousands of wallets. But Tezos was not just claiming that their platform would have prevented the error in the code. They did mention that. But much more importantly, and central to their concept, in fact, was that Tezos was responding to what the so-called governors of Ethereum did when that happened. It was an extremely controversial act at the time, still is, which was to literally turn back the stolen transactions and restore the DAO tokens to the wallets that lost the money. Now, you would be absolutely right in asking this question, maybe like, hang on a second. I thought that one of the basic tenets of blockchain as a technology was immutability that you can't go back and undo transactions. And you would be right to ask that question. And of course, that is essentially the focal point of the controversy. If you believe deeply in this concept of immutability of the blockchain, then the position is pretty clear. No matter what, transactions should not be reversed, and certainly not by any central authority. But what actually transpired in this situation in 2016 was that there was a 24-hour vote, which resulted in an actual change to the Ethereum protocol, the code itself, and which had the end result of restoring, essentially, the stolen money to the contributors. Now, what actually happened then was a hard fork. In fact, that's how it was proposed. It was a hard fork of the protocol. And as you probably know, a hard fork results in two currencies, essentially two different truths of the blockchain. And in this case, what happened was there was Ethereum Classic was born, and Ethereum, where the Ethereum Classic maintained the original transactions, and Ethereum, which represented the modified code, went off into two separate directions. Now, when this happens, one of the forked currencies generally will die off, gradually die off because of a, a lack of interest, a lack of mining, a lack of incentive. However, this actually didn't happen. And the fact that that didn't happen revealed that there was strong support in the Ethereum community to not create a mechanism by which those tokens were returned. So at the time of this podcast, Ethereum Classic is still maintaining over a $1.6 billion in market share. Now, that's a smaller amount, granted, than the main fork of Ethereum, but it still exists and it still thrives. So this fact revealed that there was indeed strong support for the idea of maintaining more autonomy or perhaps 
even encoding into the protocol a self-regulating mechanism. And that opinion and also that concept was mentioned in a blog post in February of 2017. And this is where the two stories just begin to converge a little bit because the author of that post was the co-founder of Tezos. And it was written a few months before the Tezos ICO. Now it should be understood that the original Tezos white paper actually appeared in 2014, two years before the Dow incident. And in the original white paper, it was presumed that Tezos would be a platform that could be used and would be encouraged to be used with either Ethereum or Bitcoin or any other platform. But when it came time to issue the ICO in 2017, the Tezos project was offered in a slightly different light, particularly because of the Dow incident, such that it was offered as a alternative platform that had some better components, such as a self-regulating, self-adjusting, self-amending platform. Now, one thing that we should mention before we dive into the details of what transpired next is that the Dow incident spurred the SEC earlier this year to issue a statement to the effect that for several reasons, the SEC specifically considered the Dow ICO to have been a security offering, and this was accompanied by a general warning to the public about ICOs. Now, the SEC didn't take any action against the Dow. They merely issued that warning, which made a lot of news and which provided a slight chill over the ICO market, which then regrouped and then began issuing ICOs in earnest. So let's get back to Tezos specifically. Now, there were clearly some missteps and mistakes that were made. The first was not establishing a hard cap for this sale. In the summary paper for the token sale that was issued in leading up to the ICO, the roadmap described the most extreme result that they could imagine in terms of how much money they could raise as a Mars shot, which of course is a longer shot than a moonshot. And that was set at $20 million. In the paper, that represented the most wildly imaginative amount of money that they possibly could have raised. Well, they didn't set a cap. And because they didn't implement any cap at all, and because of some various factors that we're going to learn about, this project took off, became wildly successful, if you will, and raised over $230 million for what amounted to a relatively small project with a team of about 10 people. Now, another mistake was that the organization of the sale was overly complicated. The company that would be creating the platform from an intellectual property perspective was an LLC established in the United States, and it was run by a husband and wife team. The husband was a former employee of Goldman Sachs, uh, and the wife uh, worked in a hedge fund. But the sale would be run, and the money would be collected by an independent Swiss foundation that was created just for the purpose of the token sale, and it had applied for nonprofit status. And in these months leading up to this sale, when asked, uh, one of the co-founders mentioned uh, Switzerland because uh, of the 
favorable regulatory environment. And ultimately, the plan, apparently, was for the Swiss Foundation to purchase the United States company that held the intellectual property for $20 million. So this is an unusually complex arrangement, had not been used before. Another potential mistake was to conduct a private pre-sale, we're seeing this more and more now, to collect a substantial amount of money from the venture capital world. In this particular case, it was the famous Tim Draper. Maybe you've heard about Tim Draper. Uh, he's certainly a, a very well-known Silicon Valley investor, venture capitalist. But what's interesting about him is that back in 2014, he purchased all of the 30,000 Bitcoins that were confiscated by the Justice Department from the wallets that were seized in the Silk Road prosecution. Now, at that time, he paid $1.6 million for those 30,000 Bitcoins. Right now, they're worth about $195 million, which by all accounts was a pretty good investment by Mr. Draper. But this early pre-sale investment in this ICO has revealed a sort of tendency uh, by these ICOs to conduct private sales early on in anticipation of the public sale. And in more than one case, not particularly this one, we, we don't know yet because it's in limbo, but in more than one case, what has been seen is what some people are calling pretty obvious pump and dump schemes. Like, for example, uh, there's some analysts that are questioning Bankcoin, which raised well over $100 million earlier this year. But a month after the sale, the market cap for the coins came in at around $70 million. So it appears, just by looking at the events of some of these ICOs, that maybe the pre-sale investors are capturing a large percentage of those coins before the public sale and then dumping their coins at a tremendous profit immediately after the exchanges pick up the token for trading. So this pre-sale to private investors also occurred. So those were some of the obvious mistakes made during the sale. But let's take a careful look now at this class action lawsuit to possibly reveal even more specific things that probably should have been avoided. So the details of the claim, which has a filing date of October 25th in San Francisco Superior Court, lists the defendants as the U.S. company, DLS, the Swiss Foundation, Tezos, and also the marketing company that was hired to promote the ICO. And in addition to that, there's anywhere between 1 and 99 more yet unknown people referred to as Doe's 1 to 100. Now, those are the defendants. This claim also lists a total of six so-called causes of action. Now, in case you don't know what a cause of action is in this context, it's more or less defined as specific reasons that justify a civil lawsuit. It's sort of like the civil equivalent of a criminal count. Basically, a listing of the things that you did wrong that make it possible for me to sue you. And I'll go through these one by one as a sort of a mini analysis in its own right, with some sort of conclusion that we can draw at the end of each one of these. Now, of course, before I do that, I'll issue this very special disclaimer that I'm not an attorney, nor am I pretending to be an attorney. 
And in fact, my analysis is by no means a professional opinion of any kind because I'm a citizen of the United States and I'm allowed under the glorious First Amendment to the Constitution of these United States to broadcast my personal opinions. And that comes with a special shout out to Mr. James Madison. Now here are the causes of action. And the first three are specifically in reference to the United States Securities Act of 1933. And the second three are based on California law. And the last is more of a judicial doctrine, sort of a theory, which as you'll see is, is quite useful in these types of lawsuits. Number one, unregistered offer and sale of securities. Number two, fraud in the offer of sale of securities, section 17A and 1. Number three, fraud in the offer of sales of securities in section 17A, 2, and 3. And then number four is false advertising in violation of the California Business and Professional Code. Number five is unfair competition in violation of the California Business and Professional Code. And number six is the alter ego liability. All very interesting legal claims. Let's take the first one. Unregistered offer and sale of securities. Now, this first cause of action will require that the court holds that the ICO itself was an offer of a security and that the coin issued and sold, referred to in the white paper and in the sale as a tezi, should be considered a security. And the reasons why they make this claim echo our old friend on this podcast, the Howey test. So in the claim, in order to establish that the Tezzy was a security, the attorneys claimed that the investment in Tezzy's were an investment in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits solely from the efforts of others, namely those defendants. And of course, the fact remains that no one registered the sale with the SEC as a security sale, hence the violation. Now, the claimants also include as an exhibit in the filing the statement by the SEC earlier this year regarding the Dow ICO and their findings that the Dow was, in fact, the sale of a security. What's interesting about this to me is that these two ICOs continue to be involved with each other in sort of one way or another as time moves forward. Remember, Tezos, ironically, was created in response to the Dow in the first place. In any case, back to this claim, those three points that the attorneys are invoking, the common enterprise, the expectation of profit, and solely by the efforts of others, we recognize those as these quick, high-level prongs of the Howey test itself. Now, what's key about this is that in this case, the claim that supports the case for this action by Tezos was the fact that the network was not yet working. And that because the network was not yet working and because the value of the token was directly tied to the usefulness and popularity of the network, it would therefore require the sole effort of others for the token to have value. And what that means is that an investor in putting money into this common enterprise would need to rely 100% on the defendants. So 
what's the takeaway? What's the conclusion that we can draw here? Well, one way to look at this is if you don't want to be vulnerable to this claim, or if you're examining an ICO and you want to make sure it won't be vulnerable to this claim, is if the ICO has a working, fully functional network before the ICO takes place. If that's the case, then presumably in the blockchain world, the investor doesn't have to rely 100% solely on the efforts of others. So that's an interesting point to keep in mind with respect to this and as well any other ICOs you look at. Number two, fraud in the offer of sale of securities, section 17A1. And of course, if you want to look this up, this is all the 1933 United States Securities Act. And you can just go right to it and read it. It's been amended a few times, if you can imagine, but it's still intact. And those sections are still those sections. 17A1. Uh, this, of course, has a little bit of dependency on the first cause of action, right? So fraud in the offer of sale of securities, well, it has to be deemed a security for this one to take effect. But what's the basis of the claim in the first place? Well, A1 simply states that you violate the act by deploying any scheme or mechanism to defraud. So the basis of the claim is a series of allegations that the defendants, as the sale approached, engaged in exaggerations and outright lies. So specifically, this is that the network would be up and running by September 2017, so they're invoking that again, and that the funds collected are not being allocated as the investors were told they would be. Also, the marketing company that was hired claimed that industry giants like Ernst & Young, Deloitte and & Touche and others had adapted the use of the Tezos network in their development environments and in their labs. But the claimants were actually aided in this case by a pretty in-depth investigation conducted by Reuters that came out in September and October of 2017 where they went and interviewed some of the companies like Ernst & Young and Deloitte and some of the other ones, Ernst & Young denied that Tezos had been adopted at all. In fact, Reuters reported that all of the companies mentioned by the marketing company responded in more or less the same way, that the claims were either false or that they were greatly exaggerated. So that doesn't look too good. Also included in the lawsuit was a series of statements from various channels about the schedule of when the network would be available. And some, which we now look at, might be seen as fairly unrealistic promises. The latest word from Tezos in an article that they posted that was describing some of the internal problems that they were having was February of 2018. And finally, that summary paper that was issued for the sale itself was invoked with the promises of the so-called Mars shot which, if they had received $20 million, effectively promised a whole slew of very ambitious things like acquiring mainstream print and TV media outlets, sponsoring leading computer science departments, deploying teams of engineers. They even promised to negotiate with small nation states to officially recognize the TESI as a currency. Pretty ambitious stuff. And the claimants are saying, well, if you were going to do that for $20 million, but you raised $500 million, now we see that none of those steps were taken. 
Now, to be fair, it's a little much to expect that any one of these things could possibly be completed in the three months after the conclusion of the sale until now, no matter how much money was raised. I mean, each one of those is a project unto itself. But nevertheless, the point will probably not be lost on those that end up examining this in a legal sense, uh, that not even the first steps were taken on any of these promises. And it may be true that the money's currently tied up in a Swiss foundation and the founders are arguing amongst each other, which, by the way, is the reason this sort of came to the public, was that they took their disagreements and placed them on social media for everyone to see and to begin to call doubt into this entire enterprise. I should have included that, and I will now, as a major, major blunder. If you have some dirty laundry... It's better not to air it when the laundry is worth that much money. What's the takeaway here with this section? Well, if you're an ICO, you need to be absolutely truthful and careful in your statements. If you're an investor, not a bad idea to join the Slack channel, join the Discord channel, join the Telegram channel, and ask those tough questions directly of the people who are putting out that ICO. In fact, it wouldn't be a bad idea to do that in public on Bitcoin talk and so forth and so on like people do because there's a record of what the ICO issuers are saying. Third cause of action, 17A, 2, and 3, our old friend, the Securities Act of 1933, same section. Now, separating sections 2 and 3 from section 1 in a separate cause of action I can only imagine that this is a legal tactic, some kind of technical legal tactic that was employed probably just for purely strategic reasons, since sections two and three are really just more detailed versions of fraudulent behavior. It's kind of hard for me to see how a judge or a jury would rule in favor of one and then not two and three, or two and three and not one, but in any case, there must be there must be a, a very important reason. Uh, rule... Section 2 is actually quite specific in that the issuance of a material fact that was untrue or even the omission of a truth is also covered in that section. So that would bolster and cover a good portion of the items that they cite as examples we just talked about. The fourth cause of action is false advertising in the California Professional and Business Code. And the basis for the claim of this state law. Uh, is that the statements by the founders in the lead-up to the ICO, as well as that marketing company, were actually false. And uh, there's a number of technical legal points that are made in the claim that obviously conform line by line with the statute. There's no point in me going through them in detail each time. But the important thing was that damage was suffered, and they specifically referred to the fact that this plaintiff, the lead plaintiff, it could be many, uh, this is class action, but the the lead plaintiff uh, spent one Bitcoin worth $2,800 at the time. And another important thing is that the defendants, or they intend to show in trial, that the defendants knew that the statements that they were making were misleading. And again, what's the takeaway here? Just be very, very careful what you say in public about anything you're doing that is high enough profile to get sued over. Uh, in this In this claim... Uh, there were verbatim interviews with one of the co-founders being interviewed where 
she was sort of stumbling uh, over the fact and not quite sure that she was, whether she was saying that they were selling or asking for a donation. And in the same sentence, she would sort of flip between the two. I mean, this was the way that it was written out in the claim. It was pretty revealing, you know, where she was coming from. And there was these sort of um, these sort of statements where uh, she said something to the effect of, "Oh, it's it's just like NPR when or public radio when you you donate a little bit of money and we send you a tote bag." I mean, you know that these kinds of things are all invoked in this claim. So what's the takeaway? Just Maybe don't talk too much when you're out there uh, managing or promoting your ICO. Or uh, just, if you are, be careful what you say and how you say it. The fifth cause for action is interesting in that it's unfair competition. So I guess unfair competition in the sense that they made they lied and then they created an atmosphere of unfair competition against other ICOs. It's, it's not completely clear. Uh, but what if you read, if you go and find out and look at that, that statute, um, in the California Business and Professional Code, you find that actually it has a, a civil penalty of up to $2,500 per occurrence. So that's kind of interesting because uh, in the claim, it's mentioned that there could be as many as 30,000 claimants under this class action lawsuit. And if that were the case, 30,000 investors, and if the court would hold that each person who invested was defrauded or was in violation of the unfair competition section of the California Business Professional Code, and you do that multiplication, you come up with about $75 million. So maybe that's why it was added. I mean, it kind of makes sense. I guess the more things that you add to a claim, uh, the stronger the case becomes, and you just throw in there anything that could possibly stick like spaghetti against the wall. And the last one, the last claim for action is alter ego. This is an interesting one. This is actually a judicial theory. And what this is, is it's mainly used in, in what they call in legal terms, piercing the corporate veil, which essentially holds that the creation of entities like foundations, corporations, LLCs, in order to shield the defendants from liability, are essentially artificial shells merely created for no other reason than to diffuse the liability of the defendants and therefore null and void. They're not actual functioning entities. That's what the judicial theory uh, holds. And this claim specifically calls out that husband and wife team, uh, their name is Brightman, uh, as the primary beneficiaries of the ICO and that the foundation and all of the other Tezos defendants this notably, by the way, excludes the marketing company in this case, are just mere shells of the Brightmans. Not being a trained lawyer, I can only just look at this as, as an interested person. It just seems to me to be a device to ensure that everybody that's behind the lawsuit are sort of identified as one. And they're more or less the same thing. And that way, if there's an award and it's all the same thing, then you can be assured that you're going to issue that award against some entity that has the money to pay it. So I think that that, that sounds like a perfectly uh, reasonable use of the alter ego uh, doctrine. And I, I'm not surprised to see it here. And I can see how it can be useful in these kinds of situations when what they're alleging that these 
complicated machinations in corporate structure were designed to skirt the law of the United States and so forth. So I think the takeaway of this particular uh, section is that, you know, legal maneuvering and machinations like this may not be enough to protect a given team. And it's a little bit maybe naive to expect uh, that you're going to sort of get away with, uh, with creating an overly complex corporate structure uh, if it turns out that what you're actually committing is fraud. So those are the specific causes of action. And what is the final takeaway from this entire debacle, for lack of a better word? Well, first, uh, we've seen that there's no such thing as a boring week in the ICO and cryptocurrency world, that's for sure. Uh, I would call this yet another development in this ongoing and far, far, far from settled matter regarding the regulation of ICOs and in cryptocurrency in general. It's going to be very interesting to see the impact that this has, if any, on the ICO market in the coming months. Now, is it going to be shrugged off like so many other things that have been shrugged off? Like, for instance, the Dow over a year ago that occurred. It was every bit as earth-shaking as this, perhaps even more. And yet the ICO community sort of regrouped, changed their syntax a little bit in the white papers and went forward in earnest like never before. Will it have an effect like the SE statement had in July of 2017, which was similar, such that it was a slight cooling, maybe a little pause, and then another little regroup, and then the ICO continued? Or will it actually have a material impact? Because besides the possibility of SEC of the SEC or maybe other agencies regulating the space to protect investors, maybe, maybe this will influence or affect the influx of new ICOs coming to market, or maybe it'll put the investors off. Maybe the investors will be a little bit more skeptical, a little bit more um, demanding of answers, a little bit more cautious where they put their money, where they throw their coins. And maybe that'll have an effect on the number of ICOs going to market. Or maybe this is just going to set new standards that need to be met by ICOs, such as having a completely and totally functional platform operating before issuing the ICO. Now, there's been a wide range of reactions from various sources. Even Tim Draper himself created an open letter to the SEC urging some restraint in regulation, some very simple tests to determine whether an ICO is a security or not. Uh, other people have weighed in. Uh, attorneys specialize in security law proclaiming various versions of I told you so. Uh, then there's the European press decrying the overly litigious tendency of American law. Uh, and then there's others. I noticed a few articles at some traditional crowdsource funding sites uh, that was pretty much proclaiming the demise of the entire ICO market itself. The one thing here that jumped out at me was the fact that this lawsuit seizes on essentially one item, really. could never call this a house of cards in terms of this claim, but they're really seizing on the delay of the platform, the delay of the network. And their entire argument, which really uses this as the major dependency, 
stems from the fact that the network was simply not ready at the time of sale, and therefore, because of that, it should be deemed a security. So to me, that means that a lot of trouble could be spared if the ICO, instead of rushing to market, spends the time and builds something that actually functions before going to market, before releasing that ICO. So that's my major takeaway in this entire thing. We are going to be following this over the next few months. We're not going to devote an entire episode to it again, but we certainly will mention it from time to time. I do have one other thing that I want to mention, fascinating in its own right. We've been talking about SegWit2x, which is the second version of Segregated Witness for uh, Bitcoin, which has really had a major impact on Bitcoin's price, we believe, has been abandoned. Can you imagine? What is the result? The result has been a, I don't know if you'd call it a crash, but a, a drawdown in the price of Bitcoin and a rise in the price of Bitcoin Cash. Now, what is Bitcoin Cash? Bitcoin Cash is the result of the original segregated witness hard fork of Bitcoin that occurred in August. Now, that had a number of issues with it, particularly around the fact that there was very few miners. There was just one or two massive miners or something to that effect. And so the, high, the price just sort of hovered around a few hundred dollars and it creeped up to around six or seven hundred. But then on the 11th of November, which is yesterday, it started rising. And uh, at one point it had hit um, about a thousand dollars in between the, the wee hours of the morning on the 12th. And at one point on the 12th, uh, it rose to $2,300. So it pretty much doubled in price in 24 hours. It, at the time of this, uh, which is GMT November 13th, it, we're back down to about $1,100 on Bitcoin Cash. Uh, and it's interesting because it's it's showing that the segregated witness which is really just like what happened with uh, the uh, vote uh, for Ethereum. Uh, segregated witness is essentially a proposal to hard fork the currency, to do something completely different with the protocol, to release completely different code. And the developers sort of muster the consensus among each other, release the code, and hope for the best. In this particular case, it looks like there's plenty of miners that believe that maybe segregated witness is not that great an idea. And so you're seeing this torturous back and forth between Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. Uh, so it's very, very interesting to see what's going to actually happen with Bitcoin and with Bitcoin Cash as well. Sort of the war of the miners, the war of the developers. and uh, I can certainly see how this entire space confuses the heck out of people who are trying to make sense of it. There's so many missing parts in people's minds about how this entire thing works. Well, the strange part about it is that you have this simultaneous 
overarching sort of ignorance, that's not the right word, I guess that's a negative term, but lack of understanding of everything about it. And yet you'll go to a restaurant and just like the height of the dot-com bubble, you'll have your waiter talking about mining or about Bitcoin or about Ethereum. And yet at the same time, there's these nuances that are occurring that are so far outside of what anybody thinks about or understands with respect to it, that it's, it's just a very interesting kind of bubble, if that's where we are. And I think most people would agree that we're in some sort of bubble here. It's just a very, very unusual and very interesting uh, space at this moment. So thanks for listening this week, and we'll talk again soon.